Well, welcome everybody. Uh, add my welcome to um, Sam's and Steve's and Sandy's. I was just thinking, how far can you take art? Can you have live art? Like, could you bring in your little baby and just stick it in a crib and just leave it there next Thursday and say, that's my piece of art? No, okay. So don't do that. We don't want to look after your kids. They're yours. Hey, uh, we're in the book of Jonah. We started the series uh, last, last week. We kicked it off and uh, called it A Tale of Uncomfortable Love. And I just kind of came to that conclusion because as I, as I read through the story again and again, it made me feel uncomfortable. It just made me feel uncomfortable how, how God goes after us and the way he goes after us and what he is prepared to not put up with in us. And uh, it was a bit of a shocking start, I think, as in that when we actually kind of got to know Jonah, we're confronted with this man, a good man, a religious man, a national hero, a religious hero, if you like, but he's actually no hero at all. He's an anti-hero. God seeks to do something new with him by way of extending his mercy toward uh, surrounding nations. Go and call out to Nineveh uh, like a prophet would call out toward Israel and warn them of their impending doom and God's judgment. Now what God wants to do is go and call out against Nineveh and warn them that they might repent perhaps, that they might come into his mercy and align themselves with God. However, Jonah would rather not be a prophet of God if that's his commission, if that's his calling. He doesn't want to be someone who stands in the presence of God and then ex- and extend that potential grace of God and mercy to people that he actually despises. It's gone outside his categories. And so he flees and he takes off down to Joppa and jumps on a boat and heads to Tarshish. And we ask the question, how can, how can such prejudice, how can such indifference uh, be in the heart of a prophet? How can he not share God's, it's radical and uncomfortable and kind of new, but how can he not share that love for rebels, even ones he despises? Isn't he God's man? And they're good questions. But the better question that, that kind of pushed out of last week was, is there some Jonah in us? Is there potential for prejudice in us? Are we preferential in how we want to serve God? Where we want to serve God? Are we preferential in how we want God to come into our lives and, and deal with our own, own sin? Do we put limits on his desire to expose the sin and dysfunctionality of our own hearts? Are are we a little bit like Jonah? In the book of Jonah, we find this uh, wonderful picture of how God is dealing sovereignly in history. And he's doing it at a global level. He wants to push into Nineveh. He wants to deal with cities and culture and and empires. And then while he's doing that, what we see is he's not just uh, interested in the big picture in Jonah, but he's also dealing intimately and personally at uh, at a personal level with Jonah. 
God's concern for people, his concern uh, for their rebellion, his concern for their restoration is as widespread as it is individualized. And one of the things we learn, one of the things we'll see out of this book is that we should never kind of think that God in the complex uh, sustaining of the universe and of the running of the universe, so big, doesn't have the time or isn't interested in dialing into us personally and being aware intimately of what's going on in our situation inside the bigger story, inside the bigger context, inside the city. And so what we see is just as God will not relinquish his plans for Nineveh, he will also not relinquish his plans uh, for his prophet. Uh, He will not allow him to continue to harbor, if you like, and be comfortable with harmful and destructive prejudices and scripts within his life. It's, It's time for this uncomfortable love that was going to go to Nineveh to come into the life of Jonah and to wreck this little rebellious hideout that he is hulled up in, in the bottom of a ship. Jonah flees the presence of God. That's what he's doing. He, he, don't, he don't want to stand in the presence of God. But God won't let him go from his presence. God's response to Jonah is as, as immediate as Jonah's response to, to God. God hurls a great wind at Jonah, at, at, at the sea. And this word, hurled here, is a word that's used. It was actually used to, to describe the, the throwing of a weapon. We see references in 1 Samuel where it's, this, it's the, throw, the hurl of a spear. And there's this vivid picture here now of God launching an attack on Jonah's rebellion. It's a great wind. He's, it's a great wind that he hurls. And the, this great wind, it's the same phrase that he used for the great city. So... Jonah might not want to go into the great city, but he will now go into a great storm. But this is no ordinary storm. As the language suggests, this is no ordinary storm. It's a storm that God has sent. Uh, The storm's unexpected suddenness and fury is instantly recognized by the sailors. It's hard to imagine that professional sailors would set out on a voyage Uh, across the Mediterranean Sea without checking the weather conditions first, without making sure that you know there's favourable conditions to sail. They might not have uh, Jane Bunn telling them what the the weather's going to do, but they would be familiar with the weather conditions themselves. So the causation of this storm has come from nowhere, and it can only be explained as having supernatural origins. It's a, it's, it's a cosmic response to something. All sin, all rebellion invites a storm, if you like. Invites a storm into your environment. Invites a storm into your conscious, into your inner world. Sin causes us to, to be at conflict. Jonah is at conflict himself. He's having internal arguments and now a storm actually rages around him. Sometimes the storm within us is the rationalizations and the poor alternatives that we have to God's invitation. I'll just go to Tarshish. And Tarshish pretty much represents 
anything but what God wants us to do or to address or be. It's escapism over transformation. And it drains and it strains relationships. And now Jonah's spent. So spent that he can't even stand to be in human contact. He goes deep into the inner part of the ship. He wants no contact with anything. The last thing he wants to do right now is to find himself explaining to people who he is, where he's from, what is it that he does, particularly to a bunch of pagan sailors. They're the people he's trying to avoid. But it's not a place that God wants to leave Jonah. Don't want to leave him in this landscape. So sin invites God to hurl a storm to break up his heart, to break up his rebellion. If we're not careful, we could be led to think that God's ill-tempered and impatient, a punitive God, just, just punishing here. But that is not the case. Just kind of answering sin with consequences sort of thing. And that's not the picture we get of God here, and it's not the picture we get of God throughout the Bible. In varying degrees, all sin has a storm attached to it. Whether, whether you want to operate outside of how God designed us to live, it invites a certain suffering, if you like. It's, it's, it's almost like a law. Like if you want to abuse your body, then it leads to poor health. If you want to abuse relationships, it leads to loneliness. In saying that too, we must acknowledge that there are times when there is no sinful cause for storms, for suffering, for for some of the landscape we find ourselves in. The Bible does not say that every difficulty is the result of sin, but it does say that every sin invites, leads to dysfunctionality, to brokenness. God sends storms from time to time to wake us up to truths that we would not otherwise see. So storms are not merely about punishment, but they can and should be about the development of faith and hope and love and patience and humility, self-control. Form these things in us like nothing else can. God hurls this storm and it threatens to break up the very ship that Jonah's hiding in the very means through which he seems to want to hide from and flee from God. The very thing that Jonah is fleeing in, God now plans to destroy with a great wind. The word for wind that is used here, this wind that causes the storm, this mighty tempest, is the same word that's used in in the Old Testament in different places and it often and can refer to the breath of God, uh, the, the spirit of God, the presence of God. It was the word, now listen, I struggle with the frenetics of the English language, let alone a dead Hebrew language from 6,000 years ago. So, ruah, wind. The wind of God, the ruah of God. In Genesis 1, we read the, the ruah, the wind of God was moving over the waters of creation. It was the wind of God that, that brought order 
out of chaos in creation. It's the Ruah of God in Ezekiel 37.5 that causes the valley of dry bones to come to life and to live again. It's the Ruah of God that is uh, pictured in Isaiah 11.4 attached to the long-awaited Messiah that's going to slay wickedness. The Ruah of God brings order out of chaos. Justice in a place of wickedness, life in death. And now, it's, 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 it's actually bringing chaos into Jonah's own chaos in the hope to bring order. Uh, Rosemary Nixon says, this word captures this idea. It speaks of an agitated yearning in the heart of God for the perfect completeness in, in goodness of creation. The Ruah of God is the yearning of God to bring goodness out of chaos, to bring order out of dysfunctionality. It's seen in creation. It's seen in the Valley of Dry Bones. It's seen in the eradication of wickedness. Order out of chaos or repentance out of rebellion. God is using this wind. And it's po- the language is to create pictures. The Ruah of God is bringing Jonah to his senses. It's capturing the activity of God in the circumstances, internal and external environments of his life. This storm is a redemptive storm. It's redemptive in its measures. It's sent to cause, in, cause Jonah to reorder, to reprioritize his heart, his inner world, not merely just to punish his disobedience. It, it's, it's theology in history, uh, if you like. Uh, it's, it's revealing our knowledge of God through the events of history. How you respond to storms in your life is important. You can let them be used to expose and destroy the places where we hide prejudices, where we hide rebellion, or you can let them destroy you and compound it in your own self-pity. And continue in your resistance to grace. Well, the contrast between how the sailors, the pagan sailors respond, and how the prophet of God responds to this storm is striking. It's even, it is even uncomfortable. As we see the pagan sailors, what, what we would call non-Christians, do all that is humanly possible to save the ship and the lives on the, on the vessel that are on board, they, they, they respond by, by seeking the common good of everybody that's on this ship, by trying to work out how this has come, what's going on. They're afraid, they're, they're, they're fearful, and, and this word for fear here is that they are literally afraid for their lives, but they are engaged in the welfare of the vessel. They take practical and penitent action hurling the cargo overboard to lighten the ship, praying to their gods for deliverance. They recognize in this situation, in this, they need deliverance. These crazy pagans. Jonah, on the other hand, sleeps in the innermost part of the boat. Jonah's sleep does not stand in contrast by way of faith. He does not sleep blissfully through the storm because of his faith in God. He sleeps to escape God. He sleeps to escape the world. Jonah sleeps because he's dead to the world. 
He's dead to its needs, its concerns, and his place in responding to them. It's the sleep of indifference and a desire to escape reality. The word inner part or, or lowest parts here carries with it a picture of total separation, a place of oblivion, a place to try and hide from God, a place to be away from everything, to disconnect, to escape, a place to avoid responsibility. As we read this, we are possibly disappointed and even uncomfortable that the evangelist on the boat, the one carrying the message of hope, whose sinful refusal to share that has caused the storm, now actually sleeps while the world around him scrambles for deliverance without a clue on how to find it. Lack of mercy in Jonah's attitude and actions towards the others reveals that he was a stranger in his own heart to the saving mercy and grace of God. We're starting to get a bit of an opinion of Jonah by now, I reckon, and it's not a nice one. But let's do what this book is asking us to do. Let's check our own hearts against God's. How do we respond to storms that want to expose deadness in our hearts towards the world around us? Do, do we repent? Do, do, we, do we look at it and go, boy, what is God saying, doing here? Or do we rationalize? Do we harbor prejudices? Are our hearts broken for the needs of the world, the lost world, drowning world, whatever little metaphor you want to put around it? Or do we rationalize our reasons for not engaging, pushing deeper and deeper into the inner parts of our own lives and our own comfort? Ah, uh, you know what? I'm in a hurry. I'm on my way to a prayer meeting. I can't stop and talk to that homeless person, that hungry person, or whatever it is. This story has wrecked me. It has exposed in me my own apathy. So busy, so busy in here. But how often? When am I stopping? When am I seeing need? And I do 60 hours a week so I can point at my own righteousness and say, oh, you know, I'm working for God. And just watch your world drown. What's it saying to us? What's this story saying to us? How does the agitated yearning of God to see the restoration in people's lives affect us? agitate us or do we just flee into our own comfort deeper and deeper well the response of the sailors may have been misguided their beliefs they're false gods but their actions are correct they knew they were now dependent on something greater than themselves and they knew how to express that need I mean, how crazy is it when the world says we're in trouble and the church sleeps? The great tragedy is the silence of the one whose faith and God is true sleeps. Correct faith without matching actions 
is dead, says James in, the New, in his New Testament letter. Jonah's beliefs and actions are in chaos. They're all out at sea. When the church sleeps and is indifferent to sin or shrieks away from its responsibility, sometimes it takes the world to wake it up. And that is a common occurrence throughout the Old Testament. God uses heathen, pagan nations, Gentile powers to wake Israel from their apathy, from their sin. We've seen this recently ourselves uh, in our own context with the Royal Commission into child sexual abuse. God does not always address us through the saints. Now, the man who fled from his evangelistic calling is about to find him surrounded, surrounded in an evangelistic opportunity, an evangelistic situation. The one who fled the presence of God is about to wake to the fearsome presence of God. Jonah is woken by his slumber by the captain of the ship with the words of rebuke, words of reaffirmation to his call and, and an invitation back into the presence of God. The word arise used here by the ship's captain to call Jonah to action is the exact same word used by God to call Jonah to action to go to Nineveh. And the phrase that follows, uh, call out to your God. Uh, Maybe call out to your God and maybe, you know, he might have a thought for us. The whole situation is God. It's more than a thought. Jonah is implored to do the very thing he is fleeing from, to stand in the presence of God on behalf of pagans, on behalf of people he has prejudices against that he doesn't like. It's an irony. And as every syllable fell from the mouth of this pagan sailor, Jonah is being stung by conviction, stung by grace. You might not care, Jonah, but I do. And I will not let you just descend into chaos. But Jonah remains silent. The grace of God is working hard against Jonah's prejudices and categories for God. Jonah fled because he didn't want to be used for the good of people he despised. He wanted to serve exclusively the the interests of believers. But God is pushing again to show him that God is a God concerned for all people. And Jonah needs to see himself as being engaged with the whole human community, not just a a church community, not just a religious community. He needs to be engaged in interceding for these pagan sailors, and he needs to do it now. But his silence, our silence, leaves the people around him to try and discern why this evil is upon them, why this calamity has come upon them. Even without Jonah's input, even in his silence, even without his special revelation from God, the sailors know something isn't right. There's an evil that has caused their distress. There's a wickedness in the world. This is what we call common grace. Even those who are far from God know this world is jacked up. Know there's something not right with what's going on. Know there's something not right with their specific situations or circumstances. 
They know it's not how it should be. Common grace is the grace of God to every single person made in His image. And while it can't uh, cause salvation, it can make you aware of your need for it. It can speak to you that you are, you and this universe are more than just matter, just material, and that your life actually matters. This means that all Christians should be humble and respectful to those who don't share their faith, knowing that at times we can receive rebuke, knowing at times we can receive insight from the secular world. Not, not saving gifts or insight, but maybe just a wake-up call. Jonah is learning this the hard way. The sailors perceive their plight is not just from natural causes, but from supernatural displeasure to evil. And their insight is right on. This word evil, ra, is a word wide in its scope and can refer to the departure from uh, anything that leads to human flourishing, whether it's moral, spiritual or physical, robs you of what God intended for you to enjoy. The kind of things that go on in Nineveh. Ra can mean the wickedness of the action of a person. The kind of things that are going on in Jonah. Ra can mean the bad or unpleasant. It can mean poor in quality. It can mean calamity or woe and even distress. And the sailors are keen to know what ra, what evil has brought the ra, the calamity, into their boat. Lots are cast. And in the nuance of the language, it could have been that several lots are cast. Like one, just that they cast one lot and went, you, Jonah. They're like, well, let's try this again. Let's try this again. And every single time, Jonah. The route that has brought the calamity on this boat is the disobedience of God's prophet. And by his disobedience, he has not only robbed Nineveh of an opportunity to repent, he has brought disaster on these sailors who are aiding and abetting his escape from God. Sin is never confined to an individual. It's never just confined to you. It affects every relationship you're in. They ask the pretty obvious question, what kind of person are you? And what kind of God do you serve that your presence would mean our doom? In ancient culture, who you are is inextricably linked to what you worship and not much has changed. We've just replaced invisible deities for visible representations. We worship the Kardashians or we worship Mitre 10 or whatever it is. Now, for the first time, Jonah speaks. Even though the question of his race was put last... Jonah answers this first. I am a Hebrew. And here's the heart of Jonah's prejudice and self-identity is based in his heritage, who he is, not in his relationship with God. He can tell these uh, pagan sailors who the God is of his heritage and what he's responsible for. He's the God of heaven who made the land and the sea. I think I can outrun him. Oh, and he's the God of my people. I'm a Hebrew. Jonah's relationship with his God flows out of his nationality primarily and not his own deep heart encounter with God. I'm a Baptist. I'm a this, I'm a that. No, 
I'm, I'm a sinner saved by grace. This explains why inviting other nationalities, particular evil ones, into God's blessing causes in Jonah an inner storm. On what merit do these people come? On what basis are they included? How do they get to deserve the same rights as me? This is what's going on in Jonah. Prejudice. Nevertheless, Jonah's explanation of who he is and the God he fears, and this word fear means to this is you know to, to, to worship, to stand in awe of, creates in the soul, so, sailors an authentic and genuine understanding. And now they stand in fear and awe. They were first word of fear about the sailors was they were afraid. They were afraid of the unknown. They were afraid they were going to die. Now, they are afraid, they fear, they have awe and respect for this God of the heaven who created the earth and the sea. A God who can just conjure up a storm. Well, if that's the case, what on earth have you done? Why don't your actions match your convictions is the penetrating question that these sailors have coming to hear about this God. We don't actually blame God. In fact, we kind of like a God who is fierce for righteousness, who would pursue the sinner. And many of us are similar. And the same question comes to us in that we may believe very sincerely in our heads that Jesus died for our sins, but yet that has no practical outworking. It hasn't changed how we do life. It hasn't changed how we view others and ourselves. To a degree, our significance, our primary significance, our meaning is still found in our jobs, still found in our marriages, still found in our financial worth or our notoriety in social circles. The sailors turn to Jonah and in effect say, well, well, what do we got to do? How do we make this right? How do we appease the wrath of your God who, who, who seeks right relationships, who seeks righteousness? Now Jonah's own theology goes to work on him. He wants a God who punishes. He wants a God who just, who, who just punishes sin and rebellion and wickedness. A God who would just smite Nineveh. He can't conceive of it any other way. So now that his sin is exposed, hurl me into the sea and the waves will become quiet. My rebellion, my disobedience deserves death and he is dead right. Maybe it's no more than pity, self-pity. Maybe it's pity for the sailors. But at least Jonah is now moving. It's better than contempt that he had. And we're starting to see a slow movement in the prophet's heart. He might not yet be able to look at God. He might not yet be able to stand in God's presence. He wants to go into the sea. He cannot bring himself to be on speaking terms and the presence of the storm has confirmed 
has confronted him with the reality that he cannot outmaneuver, he cannot ignore God, that God is relentless in his pursuit of him. But at least now for the first time, he sees the men in front of him as people who are themselves in need of rescue. Tim Keller sums this moment up by saying, you are dying because of me, but I should be dying for you. Throw me in and I will take the wrath of God. It's not an option that sits well with the sailors and again they act better than Jonah and they try even harder to row to shore. The storm will not relent and all on board realize that Jonah's substitutional death is all they have left. Both the sailors and Jonah realize that deliverance will come at the cost of someone's life and we might recoil at that. We might think, really? Human sacrifice? But this is what we call typological history. It's not prescriptive history. It's unique. This is a unique moment in history and it's painting a picture and it's awaiting its ultimate fulfillment. It's something that's pointing down the corridor of time to a greater uh, picture of what takes place. The sailors now do what Jonah is unwilling to do and they call out to the Lord. Interesting language that they use. Lord, O Lord. They use the appropriate Hebrew name for God, Yahweh. And they recognize his sovereignty and his affairs in the world. And they ask that God would be merciful to sin. They ask that God would forgive them. They're doing exactly what Jonah needed to do. Repent and come into the presence of God. And Jonah is hurled into the sea. And immediately the sea is calm. And the outcome of that is that the sailors feared the Lord exceedingly. And again, we understand this word now, fear. that They came reverently in awe. Their fear is of the sovereign God. Their hearts have moved somewhat. And Jonah is swallowed by a large fish. The matter-of-fact recording of this event leads to its authenticity. Like, if you wanted to make this moment up about the fish swallowing Jonah, you'd add in details, you know. Ah, the fish was large. Let me tell you about how it's possible. But it's just matter-of-fact. Adds to its ring of authenticity. Sailors have moved from fear of the unknown to awe of the known, awe of the revealed God that is before them. Now these men make vows. The vow-making is promises to the Lord. Promises that are made not during the midst of the storm. Promises that are made, not made kind of deal-making with God. Oh, if you get us out of this, we promise to give our lives to you. If you save us from this storm, we promise to worship you alone. No, these are promises made in response to being saved. They have already been saved from the storm. This is post. They are responding to the greatness of God who relents from judgment and extends grace. These promises, these vows are probably made in the comfort of their own home, possibly not on the boat. It's, it's a reflection. They're thinking back of, of what happened. 
And now that divine mercy, that confronting divine mercy of God toward rebellious people that Jonah finds so hard to swallow is the only hope that he has left now as he himself is swallowed. God is faithful and will do what is necessary to craft in us genuine and real and authentic faith. He will not relent until uh, the work is complete. Is it not wonderful? Is it not glorious? That God's dissatisfaction towards sin sees him pursue us relentlessly until every little microbe, until every little prejudice, until every little hidden harbour of sin is dealt with in the hearts of his children. God is love. But his love comes to us in a storm sometimes. And that storm is redemptive. God still pursues Jonah. There's more work to do in the heart of this prophet. And God pursues all people. And that pursuit stepped into human history in the person of Jesus, who again, Matthew 12, where he says, He is a greater Jonah. In him we will see a greater sign than the sign of Jonah. In him we will see one who willingly gives his life without any uh, sense of guilt. There is no sin in him. He doesn't need to die for anything. The wrath of God is not towards Jesus. But Jesus faces the storm on our behalf. Jesus hurls himself into the storm of God's wrath that we might find him there and take refuge. We don't have a God like the one Jonah feared. We have a God like the one the sailors feared. Who sends storms to bring us to faith and worship. To wake us from our rebellion. Sometimes the love of God is uncomfortable. It agitates us. It calls us to repentance. But it brings us life. There is not a command of God that doesn't bring us life. And the question continues. How are we responding to this uncomfortable love of God? Are we letting it are we letting it agitate our hearts to bring life, to, 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 to deal with sin? Are we, are we letting it agitate us to, to, to places of compassion rather than indifference? Or, or, or are we just kind of resisting it and pushing deeper and deeper and descending further and further down? That's the question. <clears throat>